Well, it is week five of Hebrews chapter 12, and I hope that you guys have been encouraged so far as we've gone through this, this series and this text. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a little, I'm going to miss you guys next week when Dan comes back up here. In one sense, in another sense, I'll be like, <laughs> it's on you now, Dan. I get to sit in the front row and listen. Uh, but I, I will be honest, I, I will miss the deep study. I'll miss time in my office and space to be able to think through some of these things. So I just want to say from the outset, appreciate you all listening. And uh, definitely the feedback and things like that has been encouraging. So I really appreciate you all for that. Uh, let's pray. And Father, as we come to a text today, a portion of Scripture where we see that there is a great shaking that happens, that will happen. We are reminded that all that lasts is that which is built on the foundation of Jesus. But Father, we have so many false foundations. We have so many substitute affections. We have so many different areas in our life that we know won't last, and yet we still move to them over and over again. And my prayer today, Father, is that as you remind us of the complete sufficiency of you and your son, that you would help our hearts to see him as more worth it than anything else. God, as we've been saying this whole series, Jesus is better May we take it one degree further and say, Jesus is the best. And God, so I pray by the power of your spirit, you would root out things in our lives that need to be rooted out today. We trust you that you've given this word for a reason and a purpose, and we submit corporately to it today. Amen. So I don't know if you guys are like me in elementary school. If you're from California, then this definitely happened for you. If you lived somewhere else and then came back in, it might not have happened to you. But about once per quarter, every three to four months, the teacher would get in. They were like, guess what, kids? Today is an earthquake drill. Right? And those are really fun days because you're like, ooh, I get to get out of my desk. But what the teacher said every single time was, if the earth, if we start to have an earthquake, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to duck and move to cover. Right? They used to tell you to go in the doorways. That's back when they built houses really strong. Now they're like, don't go to the doorway anymore. Find a table or find a desk and get underneath it. Well, why do you do that? You do that because when things start to shake, things crumble. And you have to be under the shelter of something strong to last. That's just true. That's our text today. It's like the shortest opening story you're ever going to get from me. But our text today is a passage that talks about the shaking of the earth. And not just an earthquake that is felt for a moment and then passes, but a trembling that will reveal the sureness of the foundations that we have built our life on. See, the text is going to tell us today that there is a shake, there is a great rumbling, there is going to be something that happens that doesn't shake just the earth, but it shakes the heavens and the earth. And any, any foundation that is not Jesus ultimately will crumble in that moment. And God, in his wisdom, in order to help us to endure the run of faith, wants us to be 100% sure what I offer lasts. Everything else doesn't. It should be an easy equation. But how often isn't that the case for us? How often doesn't seem that way? And so I just want to say right from the get-go, this text today, as Damon read it, there is warning involved. There is a warning involved. And today I'm, I'm going to bring the warning because may I never come to a section of Scripture and change it. But it's here for a reason. And the writer of Hebrews has it here because it will help our endurance. 
So know that from my heart, I am never somebody who wants to scare the sheep. If you are a believer in Christ here, there, in the text it says that you have a firm foundation because of Jesus. That's just true. And sometimes we have to look at what the negative is to remember how positive we have it. So if that's you today, that's amazing. And if you're coming in here as a believer and you are struggling and you are suffering, I am not piling on. I'm merely reminding you that this is temporary, but what lasts will ultimately not be able to be shaken. But there is another category of people that I think need to hear from me today, and that is I genuinely do want to warn you that if your foundation isn't Jesus, ultimately what you are living for will crumble. And I'm just going to be honest, if that offends you a little bit, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. My heart is not to do that, but I believe that you need to know the truth. And here's what's interesting. You might say, well, isn't this a message for unbelievers? This is written to a Hebrew home church. This is written to a congregation just like ours. And I think it's important that we go into it. See, it's interesting. Last night, and it's funny how God does this, I was like folding laundry. Hold on, that's a lie. I poured my clean laundry onto the bed. It's still there. I fell asleep before I folded it. But as I was looking on my wife's side of the bed, she actually had the text I'm preaching on today in a greeting card, right? But it wasn't the first part. It was the second part. It says, therefore, let us be thankful that we are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. That's greeting card stuff. That's awesome. And by the way, if you're the one who gave that to my wife, congratulations. Not everybody makes the nightstand. You made it. But imagine just for a second me coming with a greeting card on your next birthday and you opening up and they're like, oh, I wonder what Pastor Adam gave me. wonder what card he's got for me. You open up the card and it says, uh, yeah, the foundations you build on, be careful um, or else. Happy birthday. <laughs> right? Like we don't do that sort of thing. But here's the idea. We don't have a greeting card faith, do we? No, we have a faith that is built on the true words of God that we can bank on. So let's move to that. And as we do that today, I want to answer a couple questions. I want to look at a couple things. But the first thing that I want to look at as we look at the text, and Mondo, you can put it up there for me. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. First thing we have to figure out in this text is who's him? If it's like we can't reject him, I need to know who him is. And what I'm going to submit to you is that it is God that is the speaker. God's the speaker. We're told twice in this passage that someone is speaking, and they're speaking from two locations. There's a speaking from earth, and there is a speaking from heaven. Is this the same speaker? Is it different? What, what's going on here? Now, I might have given it away with my point that God is speaking, so hopefully we'll come to that uh, understanding. But here, I want to show for you Deuteronomy chapter 5, Verses 1 through 5, and then I want to read for you also 22 through 25. This gives us a hint, or this tells us, actually not a hint, this gives us a direct understanding of who it is that is speaking. And now when we're going to this, this is exactly what Chris talked about last week in the Sinai experience. The writer of Hebrews has used this, this Sinai to Zion movement, or this compare and contrast, and showed that there was a way in which God spoke to us like this, and now he speaks to us like this. Here's the idea. God spoke to us out of his glory and out of his majesty on top of the mountain. And he was, it was absolutely gracious for him to do that. But he spoke in that way. And now he speaks to us through Jesus. 
But God is the speaker. And here's why I want you to see that. This is what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 through 5. And this is as Moses is uh, reinstating the covenant. This is what he says. And Moses summed all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak to you in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us. We, all of us who are alive today, now listen to this, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. And it says, he said. There's a pause now, because between verse 6 and verse 21, he's laying out the Ten Commandments. But notice, what's the word? Who said it? It says, he said. That's God being the speaker. God told you these Ten Commandments, and this is what it says when you pick up at verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And this is, he says later on, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man. And then it says later, if we hear the voice of our Lord, our God anymore, we shall die. That's what they say. So it's clear from this text that although Moses is interceding for the people, the thunder, the lightning, the fire, the smoke, the earth trembling, these are the words of the Lord. So it was God speaking to them in the mountain. At Sinai, God booming, his voice echoing. And what does he tell them? I want to make a covenant with you. So we, I think we can argue pretty clearly that it's God from the Sinai picture, but what does it mean that there's a voice speaking from heaven? Last week, Chris ended by talking about the, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So is it Jesus that is speaking from heaven? Is it God? Is there a distinction? How should we work this out? Well, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tell us very clearly. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. What does it say? It says that the voice that you hear from heaven, yes, even the blood of Jesus, as Chris said, that is declaring mercy, that is saying love, grace, that is actually God speaking to us through Jesus. It is the voice of God. So here's the picture. God chose to reveal something of himself on Sinai. He chose to communicate the awesomeness of his glory and majesty, his consuming power. And through Jesus, he chose to communicate the awesomeness of his grace and mercy, his consuming love. There's two pictures, and both are totally reliable, and both are totally true, and we need both of them. God is both the God of Sinai, and he's the God of Zion. He is the God that is consuming fire, and he is the God that is all-consuming love. That is the voice. That is God. That's the voice that is speaking. But we notice here that there is 
something in particular that this voice is doing. It doesn't say here in the text that he is speaking. It says that there is warning. How many times have we ever thought about the gospel as warning? Almost always exclusively think about it as good news, don't we? The good news of the message of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel. See, here's the principle that applies. Whenever God chooses to reveal himself, what he also proves is the complete insufficiency of every other way. So when God shows up in the mountain and booms his voice to the people and he says, this is my character, this is who I am, do you see how glorious I am? When I speak, the, the ground underneath you literally rumbles. When I speak, lightning flashes. When I show up, things burn. But I am a God who has chosen you. And I'm a God who's gonna fight for you. And up to that point, he had showed up with those people time and time again. When they were thirsty in the desert, he exploded rocks and water came out. When they were hungry, it literally rained down manna from the heavens and quail came in like crazy. When they crossed the Red Sea, it literally got divided. And by the way, every day there was a cloud for shade and at night there was a pillar of fire. God is saying, yes, I am this holy, yes, I am this glorious, but I'm going to let you get a piece of it. That's what he says at Sinai. That's what he said to those people. But he also tells us now, through the gospel, he's revealed something even further. The same grace, the same glory, all the same attributes, but now further revealed in Jesus which means we have a fuller picture now than they did. We have a more full picture and understanding of God than people did, even though they had the pillar of fire and the cloud. Even though the seas got parted, we're the ones who got to hear the revelation of Jesus Christ. We actually got more of the story. You can read that in the New Testament that people are like, man, you of all people, you of all people should be Thrilled that you were able to understand and hear the revelation of Jesus Christ. But here's the idea. When God makes himself known and he adds further revelation through Christ, he's saying there isn't anything better coming than what I've given you. In the offering and giving of Jesus and in the continual week in and week out pronouncement of the gospel, God is saying there isn't something better coming because I've already given you the absolute best. I've already given you everything there is to give you. I have given you every possible scenario in which you can be forgiven. By the way, what sin can't I forgive in Christ? He says none of them. You can bring any of them, I'll forgive them. That's the sufficiency of grace. That's the sufficiency of mercy. That's the sufficiency of the sacrifice that we have. But what happens when we hear the good news and what happens when God reveals himself? What happens when we're exposed to the gospel and we get God's best and we say, still not good enough? See, then good news doesn't become good news, does it? For those who hear it, the gospel is the greatest news possible. But for those who will reject it, for those who hear about what God has done, for those who hear the plan of salvation, for those who hear that he has given his son and we say, I'd rather have this, what does that say about us? 
See, the idea is the choice should be obvious. The choice should be absolutely obvious. When we hear the gospel, like Chris said last week, which one do you want? It should be clear coming off of that text that Chris preached that, listen, all of us in here, yeah, we'd be crazy not to go towards Zion, wouldn't we? That's where Jesus is. Don't we want to see him? We'd be crazy not to go there. Which brings me to my third point, that refusal just isn't rational. Refusal of God's speaking and God's warning just isn't rational. Now, Nehemiah, it's a book in the Bible, talks about the rebuilding of both temples and walls. This is Ezra and Nehemiah. And as Nehemiah comes back and all the people are going to start coming in, he wants to recount for them Israel's history. And in the recounting of Israel's history, he actually points back to this sort of rejection of, of, of warning of God. He, this is what he talks about. And I, and I think it's really a good summary for us. You could also read Psalm 78 and find a perfect summary of that. You could also read Psalm 107 and Psalm 108. You could also go to Isaiah chapter 68. Listen, this sort of rejection of God in the wilderness is a theme that just reverberates all throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, they're like, why did they do that? This doesn't make any sense. And that's the point. It doesn't make any sense. But I want to read for you this. This is Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 9. It says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of this, his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them for the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them back to slavery in Egypt. That's not rational. That doesn't make any sense. What does it say? You were not mindful of the wonders that God did for you. Do you remember the Red Sea? Do you remember the water pouring from rocks? Do you remember my very presence in pillar and fire or, and by cloud? Do you remember that you never went hungry? Do you remember that I've always provided for you? Guess what? They're on the borders of the promised land. On the very borders of the promised land. And here's what's happened. You can read this in Numbers chapter 12 and 14, but I want to give you a very quick summary. God has put up with their consistent disobedience time and time again. God has showed up. Sometimes they mess up and he's like, why'd you do that? And they're like, I'm so sorry, right? But he, he didn't say, why didn't, you, why didn't you mess them up? Sometimes like fire would burn like a third of the camp. And they'd be like, oh, okay, 
that's, we did something bad, right? That's kind of the picture that happened over and over again. But God has taken his people to the borders of the promised land. By the way, a land that he said flows with milk and honey, a land that is prepared for you and a land that I go before you to prepare. So all you literally have to do is walk into it and it's yours. I've already promised it. I'm the same God who shakes the foundations of the earth when I speak. You don't think I can scatter inhabitants of a promised land? But here's what's happened. God, in order to show them that the land flows with milk and honey, sends spies. He says, please send some spies out into the region and look at it. And these spies come back and they take a massive cluster of grapes. They take the fruit of the land, including some pomegranates, and they bring it back to the people. Now, this fruit was amazing. And it was awesome. And even the spies can't deny it. But here's what's happened. When they went through there and saw the good fruit, they also happened to see fortified cities. And not only did they see fortified cities, they saw like the great Nephilim, like giant people were in the land. And they're like, "Uh, the fruit's good, but this isn't worth it. We're going to get slaughtered. And so what they do, even though they have the fruit that God promised on their shoulders and they bring it back to the camp, the spies say to themselves, let's rouse up this crowd, let's get them all upset about all the potential dangers and get them to distrust God. And all but two spies do this, by the way. Caleb and Joshua, they don't. They're like, no, this fruit's good, man. You tasted it, I tasted it, it's awesome. Let's go in there, let's go up. But they say, no, 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 no. Their fear overrides in that moment. Even though God has promised it, even though God promised it by shaking the foundations of the mountain when they looked at, they stir up the whole nation. They stand before the whole nation. They stir up the whole nation. And by the way, this is at the very border of the promised land. Here it is over here, what God has promised. They turn their back on it and they say, Moses The person that God put in place, he's not for us anymore. Do you know what we need to do? Let's elect a new leader and let's go somewhere better than this. And you know what they come up with? Back to Egypt and back to slavery. If you are at the border lands, the border of the promised land, God's like, all you need to do is take a step in it. I've already given you everything I want. But you turn your back and say, you know what's better than your promised land? My own slavery. That's asinine. That doesn't make any sense. But that's what they did. So when it says here, see to, see to it that you do not reject the voice like they did in the wilderness, that's what this is talking about. This is when they ultimately turn their back on the Lord. And you know what God says? Are you serious? Now listen to this. Caleb and Joshua try to change the whole group. Right? They try to change their opinion like, no, remember God. Remember what he did. Remember his promises. And do you know what the nation does? Do they listen? They're like, you're right. Man, he did do that. He did do that. No, they literally pick up rocks to stone them. They're going to stone them. They have rocks. Their arms are about cocked. And it says, but, you know, then the glory of the Lord showed up and they didn't do that. Listen, my kids like to have sleepovers sometimes with their siblings. And I can always hear like this little whispers and like <laughs> laugh or whatever. And it's well past their bedtime. And I'll come in super quiet and then I just turn on the lights. You ever do that? You know if you've got kids, it's one of the delights in life to catch your kids doing stuff. It's the best. You flick the lights on and you're like, what's going on? But what do they do? They're like this. <laughs> They're sleeping. I was like, you weren't sleeping. I heard you. 
Listen, this is what God just did. They're like this. They got rocks. They're ready to stone Caleb and Joshua. The glory of the Lord shows up. This isn't a light turned on. This is the glory of the Lord. And they're like, oh, I think dad's upset. Well, Caleb and Joshua aren't stoned, but Moses has to intercede for them because the anger of God burns against him. So how does it end up? Well, it ends up that God says, you know what? You don't get to go to the promised land. You didn't want it, you don't get it. See, this wasn't a single pattern of rejection. This wasn't a single time rejection. It actually says in number 14, God says, they tested me in the wilderness these 10 times. 10 different times they tested the Lord and now they say, your good things that you have planned for us, they're not good after all. See, so God tells them, you don't get to get into the promised land. It's not God rejecting them, it's God simply allowing them to reject him. And how does he reject them? He says, hey, by the way, anybody who's 20 years old and over, in these next 40 years in the wilderness, you're gonna die. For 40 years, we're gonna wander the desert until every last one of you perishes because not one of you are going into what you didn't want. You don't get the promised land. You know what you get? Death in the wilderness. In that moment, I, thought, I think they were thinking to themselves, God's not to be trifled with. It's really funny. After they were told, you're going to die in the wilderness, you know what they did the very next morning? By the way, this isn't rational. They wake up and the whole nation says, let's go to the promised land. We're here. No, I'm not joking. They literally got up and they say, let's go to the promised land. And Moses goes, you can't. God's not with you anymore. And they're like, let's go. Like, surely he will have, forget you know, it's, it's fine. Let's go. And Moses says, don't go. This is a really bad idea. But anyways, they all go. And what do you think happens? They just get absolutely slaughtered. Like that death that they talked about started happening right then and there. In over 40 years, just to give you a little bit of a number, there's a census that was done in Numbers chapter 1 of everybody who was 20 years and older who was capable of going to war. 603,000 men. 603,000 men were counted. Women weren't counted. So if you add in probably roughly close to about 400,000 women, that is a million sets of bones in the wilderness that all say the same thing unified. God isn't to be trifled with. But that's history, Adam. We don't do that, right? That's a history lesson. That's like, we don't, like that doesn't happen anymore, right? Well, the author of Hebrews seems to suggest, yeah, it probably does. Yeah, there are people who come to the borderlands of hearing the gospel week in and week out. There are people who come and sit in these very seats. There are people who listen to the words and assume that they have every right to what's spoken here, but in their hearts they have yet, not yet submitted to Jesus. They hear the words over and over again, but their hearts are far, far from him. And before I leave this point, this is my longest point, so I'm just letting you know. They get very fast after this. But I want to say two things. Struggling as a Christian is a whole lot different than rebellion. 
Okay, and I just want to throw that out there. I'm not telling you that if you sinned last night that it's like, you, he's coming for you in the wilderness. That's not what I mean. We know that we're going to struggle as Christians. But here's the difference. There is a huge qualitative difference from somebody whose heart loves Jesus, struggles with sin, but continually moves to him. Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. I'm not there yet. Help me. And somebody else that says, I have a disregard for your way of salvation, and I think I got something better. So if you're a struggling Christian in here, and you can honestly say, by faith, I am united to Jesus, I'm not talking about you. I'm not. But if you're somebody here in this room, and you can, you can say honestly, I've heard about Jesus over and over again, but to this point in my life, I'm not actually living for him. I am speaking to you. And if it hurts your feelings, I guess I'm not sorry. The second thing that I want to say is, by using this illustration, it means that some of us right here are in danger of rejecting what we hear from the Lord. And again, I'm not speaking to Christians here. I'm talking to people who have, quote unquote, been to church their whole life. Or the people that have always just stuck around and heard it. Or the person that grew up as a certain way, but they've never actually made a commitment to Jesus. Here's why I think this happens, and if I can be honest, I'm going to read for you Deuteronomy 5.27. This is at the conclusion of what I spoke about earlier. When they clearly identified that it was God who was speaking to them, this is what the whole nation of Israel says back to God. And they say it to Moses so that he'll say it to God. It says, go near and hear all the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it and we will do it. Every single person who would eventually perish in that desert, all when they were confronted with the glory and majesty of God at the mountain said, let's do this thing. Well, it makes a lot of sense when the earth is rumbling to be like, yeah, we're going to do that. But we also know that as soon as we get out of those situations sometimes, it's a different story. See, following God is not a matter of lips alone, but of obedience and faithfulness. And maybe just maybe there are some in this room who every single week come to the border of the gospel. You look literally at the promised land. You hear about the offer of grace through faith, through Jesus, being free of charge, that all you have to do is receive it. You hear it week in and week out. And what is the response? Just like the Israelites, you turn your back and say, but this holds a lot more appeal than that. So I'm going to give you an example, and I want to be pretty, I want to be pretty honest with this. Sometimes in a church we have to do things like church discipline. It does happen from time to time. And I'm going to be, I'm not going to use any names here, but I, this is a real thing that happened here. This church where a man uh, was exposed for walking in sin habitually all of his life really in this church, right? It was hidden for many, 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 many years, hidden that it wasn't, you know, wasn't really the thing. And at least no one thought it was until it finally came out. There's a problem that even though it came out, there was no repentance. And time and time again, no matter who would go to this man and no matter who would talk to him, the same response. 
yeah, but, you know, if you would have experienced the life I'd have experienced, you would, no repentance there, excuses. So finally, it culminates in this, Dan and I sitting in Dan's office with this man, and we lay it all out and we say, is all of this true? All of it. He says, it's all true. We say, will you, for the sake of Christ, repent? He looked us in the eyes and he said, I will not repent. And we're like, what? We're like, no, 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 no. We are contending for your faith right now. We are contending. Would you just submit to grace? If you will submit to grace and say, yes, I was wrong. Can I be forgiven? There is an unconditional forgiveness over here. You're at the border of the promised land. And you know what he said? He looked us dead in the face and said, I will not repent. Oh, trust me, it is alive and it is active in our world. And listen, the story isn't over for this man. I, I pray that the Lord will use and move in his life and that he will come back and he will be able to tell this story in a mighty way. But as of right now, I don't want to be on his foundation. I wouldn't feel comfortable walking in those shoes. Why? Well, the text says the big one's coming. In California, we talk about that all the time, right, with earthquakes. Hey, guess what? The big one's coming. You don't know how right that is. There is a big one coming. Look, it says here, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things cannot be shaken may remain. What do I mean? Notice up here it says earlier, if you reject the voice from heaven, there isn't any escape for you. Escape from what? Escape from this great shaking in which all substitute foundations other than Christ will literally be shaken to pieces right under your feet. That is a picture and it's meant to be a picture. Listen, the Loma Prieta earthquake, I was alive back then, Battle of the Bay, 1989, amazing times. The earth shook for 20 seconds at a 6.9 magnitude earthquake and it caused $10 billion worth of damage. What happens when God's glory in Jesus Christ invades our atmosphere again? This isn't an earthquake, this is an earth and heavens quake. And in it, anything that is created that isn't on the foundation of Jesus literally will be shaken to bits. That's the, that's the idea. Why not why, why shouldn't we reject the voice from heaven? Because if we do, we will find ourselves one day thinking that what we are on is firm when in fact it is dissolvable and it will become rubble. That's a warning if I've ever heard one. But it's in this passage to cause endurance because for this reason, some things won't be shaken. Namely, Everything and every single person who builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ. See, notice it doesn't say that the shaking just bypasses the foundation of Jesus. It's that it's of unshakable quality. Ever think about that? That there isn't any amount of shaking possible that could ever uproot this foundation. Notice why it says in the Bible, see, I'm laying a capstone in Zion that's like I'm laying a foundation of Jesus for generations to build upon. Matter of fact, the whole kingdom of God rests on Jesus. And his work is sufficient, it is secure, and it will last through all things. 
You know why? Because Christ is unshakable. You know why? Because God is unshakable. But here's the greatest piece of this whole text. If you can go to the next one, please, Mondo. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yeah, I'm hoping to get a couple of amens out of that. This is the, this is the so far, if, you, if you're a believer in here, you've been like, man, he's kind of bumming me out. When's it get good? Well, this is when it gets good. It's been good all along, mind you, but I'm just going to say this also. This is when we come to the point where it says we're working towards that which cannot be. I know what it says. One day we'll get. No, no, we are receiving. We are receiving right here and right now. If you are someone who by faith is trusting in Christ, you have said all of my life is yours, not just the fruit of my lips, but everything that I do in faith and obedience, I'm following Jesus. Guess what you are right now? You are of that which is unshakable. You see, even a mustard seed amount of faith is unshakable enough. If all you can do is say, I don't know all the answers, but Jesus is good and I fully trust in him, guess what you are? Go ahead and shake. I ain't shaking. And it's not because you've done anything good. It's because Jesus in you makes you unshakable. So cancer can't shake you. Mental health can't shake you. Sickness can't shake you. Suffering can't shake you. Persecution can't shake you. Death won't shake you. Because when it does, what will you notice? I'm standing on the rock. That's what it is. That's a great promise, right? And what does the promise like that do? Well, it explodes our heart to be someone who worships. What's the only response that we're given in this? Are we said, now, now try real hard. Nope. We say, thank you, God, for what only you can do. I'm taking it and praise God. That's what it is. <laughs> Let us be thankful. You ever thought about that's the best response you could ever have to the gospel? You receive it with thankfulness. Listen, sometimes I try to take your, your, some, some of you parents, I try to take your sons out for lunch. And there's this thing that they do where they try to pay me back. You know, and they're like, oh, let me, let me pay you. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't pay for this. I'm trying to give you a gift. And we're like, no, I want to pay for it. And then if we eventually get into the thing where I say, don't rob me of my joy. That's the ultimate power move, by the way. As soon as you say that, then it's over. But here's the idea. When I, want, when I give you a gift, I want you to enjoy it. I want you to eat that Parmesan, primavera. I don't know what I'm saying. Whatever lunch you're eating, I want you to eat it. And I want you to eat it joyfully. And you know what I want at the end? Thanks, man. That's a really um, crude example of this, but I'm just being real. But that's what I'm talking about. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be thankful. And now guess what? What does true worship have involved in it? Not only thankfulness, but we have to have the full view of God. Both Sinai and Zion are in view when we worship God. We remember that in Christ God is all-consuming love, but we also remember that God is a consuming fire, which ultimately ends in this. He is not to be trifled with. We don't come to church week in and week out and play games. We submit by faith to Jesus, who is the best. And as we walk on the way of holiness, what do we say? Thank you, Jesus. Which is, by the way, you know what I love when we sing worship? Some of you all say, thank you, Jesus. I think after this, y'all should do that. This next song, or maybe next week. <laughs> so, two quick applications. I'm sorry. It just is what it is today. 
For some of you, be warned. I don't control who that is, so don't come to me and be like, you really hurt my feelings today. No, I did not. The word of God hurt your feelings. I love you. I'll take you for lunch and serve you pasta, primavera, whatever it is. Be warned. And maybe you're saying, well, man, Adam, I really want to access this kingdom. How do, I, how do I get this unshakable kingdom? Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 10, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Do you know what that means? I need you, God. I've tried all the ways and I can't do it. So you know what I'm going to do? Trust by faith that you know what I need. I need your mercy. I need your grace. Take it like a child to the Lord today. Amen. And if that's you, man, I, I praise God that that would be you. And for some of us, worship on the way. Those are the only responses. Be warned or worship on the way. That's it. We're runners, right? We're running towards this end goal of faith. And worship is absolutely essential on the way. Now, speaking of worship, we have the table today. How appropriate that we get to come to that which secured for us that is what is unshakable. The body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ spilled for us. So if you are a believer in Christ, as I pray or after I pray, please come up and enjoy. And maybe some of you are saying, like, listen, uh, about five minutes ago, I don't think I was uh, a believer, but uh, now I am. This could be your first communion. That would be amazing. As a matter of fact, I pray and hope that that's the case for some of you. For everyone else in here who is not a believer in Jesus at this point, we would just ask you to refrain from taking this meal. This is for believers. This is where we champion Jesus. This is where we collectively, by eating and drinking, say, Jesus is the best and better than everything. So as I pray, if I could have the servers come forward. Father, we are so thankful for your word in which you declare for us. Your ways are the best. You, your ways are better. And God, as we come and we celebrate a meal that tells us of the sufficient work of Jesus Christ, may we be moved to worship you, to accept by faith what you have done on our behalf. And God, my prayer is for all of those out there who might be just right on the borderlands, right on the verge. God, I pray that you would show them the beauty of Jesus and the gospel even right now. Help them, God, to turn by faith in you and to trust you as a child. We pray this in your name. Amen.